And as you do, I want to introduce myself. My name is Josh McLean, and I am one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church. I typically carry the bulk of the preaching load here. And uh, though I have not been here in the pulpit for the last two weeks, I I was delighted to entrust uh, you and this pulpit into the hands of our competent uh, elder, Tim Wilkerson, two weeks ago, and then this past week, elder candidate Chris Gomes. I'm thankful, thankful for both of these brothers. It's been a gift to have them, uh, to serve alongside with them, to shepherd uh, you sweet people uh, with these brothers. So I'll be praying for Chris as we move forward towards uh, the, uh, move forward through this elder candidate process. This is a a challenging task ahead of him. We want to make sure that the Lord is in this and blessing him. And so get to know Chris, ask him questions, ask him hard ones. If you need a hard one, uh, ask me, ask Google. We can, uh, we can really just put the pressure on this guy. Uh, speaking of Chris, uh, I want to just make a, a, a plug for the equipping hour, something we haven't talked about in a couple weeks, but if you've been here um, any time between 9.15 and 10 uh, on Sunday mornings, you've heard a little bit of the equipping hour. It's been some solid stuff. Every week we have a handout that's available. Right now we're working through a series. Uh, Chris is chipping away at a series called Equipping, um, and, or I'm sorry, uh, Living as a Church. And so uh, we're just a few weeks in. It's not too late. Of course, the information does, in a sense, build on itself. Uh, but it's not too late to jump in at any point in time. You'd be, you'd be blessed to do that. Um, but anyway, uh, at this time, I would like to go ahead and dismiss Hubtown Kids. So if you are from ages 3 to 5 and you're interested in going up for the, for the lesson upstairs, you're welcome to do that now. You want to meet with Miss Sarah and Miss Shadden uh, back here in the corner, and they'll take you up here uh, and, and be working through one of the attributes of God. I think it's important that we as uh, a church recognize and are aware of what's taking place in Hubtown Kids, what what we're teaching upstairs. And so I want to just give you a a heads up about what they're talking about. So if you're a parent, uh, this would be something for you to ask your kids about. If you're just just some guy or girl or gal that's interested in in the families and the growth of our children here in this area, here in this church, then uh, this would be a great thing for you to ask them about. But this morning, they're going to be learning one of the attributes of God, particularly about the love of God about the love of God, and it's a very fitting uh, type of uh, conversation for us to be having with our children, especially as we enter into Holy Week this morning. Uh, Parents, just know this. It is our goal to assist you as you raise your children to know and love Jesus. Uh, Parents, we believe that you can do it uh, by the power of God and the Holy Spirit working in your life as you raise your kids, and we're here to help you. We want you to know that. So with that thought in mind, let's go to the Lord that helps us, that is our present help in time of need now. Father in heaven, we come to you now, to the God who sees and to the God who hears. You are present with us. You're not far. You hear the cries of your people. You see your people and you have come to help them. God, you, you are the, the one who sends. You sent your son to be our Passover lamb. He died in our place. His shed blood cleanses us of our sins. And our sins are many. And yet, Christ, you died for Many. And we claim that this morning. Father, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins and that each and every one of us that are gathered here this morning, we would claim the blood of Jesus Christ, that we would turn from our sins, that we would call the thing that you hate in our lives sin, that we would change our minds about it. Father, that you would do the work through your spirit and through your word that only you can do. 
that you would change our hearts, that you'd remove that heart of stone and you'd give us a heart of flesh. And that in faith we would cry out, looking to Christ and receive forgiveness of sins that you offer us this morning. Father, we confess them to you. We lean on you this morning, Jesus. We lean on you in full dependence, asking that you would sustain your servants. Father, there's a work and there's a ministry that needs to be done here in Hagerstown, in our homes, in our places of business, in our cubicles, in our schools. Father, there's a work that you want to be done. Father, you want a work to be done in our hearts as we slay sin on an individual basis, as we turn from it, as we learn to hate it and run from it even more. As we do this work, that work that you've commissioned us to do, that's a part of your coming kingdom, Father, we pray that you would sustain us, that you'd strengthen our hands, that we would work towards that end, the end of glorifying you. Father, we pray that our witness would be bright, especially in this time as we recognize that culturally speaking, this area, our nation recognizes in some form or fashion Easter. Father, would you allow us to capitalize on that now? Again, in our spheres of influence, on our streets, in our places of business. Father, would you not give us a brightness in our testimony? Would you give us a power that our witness would permeate the area that we exist in. May that witness be of hope and of love and of justice and of invitation to forgiveness. Father, we pray over this church unity. Father, that we would not just be unified in a desire to evangelize the lost and those around us, but Father, that that we truly would have a unity and not because we look alike or because we dress alike or because we talk alike, but even when we like the same things, but Father, would you truly give us a unity, a unity that you promised that when we disagree on little issues and when we disagree on big issues that we would agree that we are in Christ and that in Christ, those who have turned from their sins and placed their faith in you are one. We pray that that unity would be realized even more fully today that each and every one of us would repent of our own personal preferences and our idols of comfort. We would turn from that and run towards and into the unity that you have already promised and given to us. Father, we pray that these things that we've asked for a, a bright witness, for a unity of the body, for our strength to be sustained in difficult times, we pray those things not only over this church, but we also pray over our brothers and sisters at New Creation Anglican Church. Father, we lift them up to you. We pray that your blessings would be on them now this morning as well. We pray that as your word is open, that your church would be helped and that you, Christ, would be glorified. Father, we think the same things. We ask the same things over our dear brothers and sisters. They're serving in Southeast Asia and preparing to go that way. God, would you not do the same thing for them? Would they not be weary and well-doing? We don't just pray these things that you would do them, but we pray that you would quicken us, that you would strengthen us, this church, to do that work in the days and weeks to come. 
Father, we don't ask these things for our glory. We don't ask them in the name of Hagerstown Church or in any of the pastors or members that make up this body. But Father, we ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. Well, good morning. This morning we celebrate Palm Sunday. Many of you are aware of what Palm Sunday is. In fact, I even saw some palms earlier this morning. They're waving them now, right? Well, there's not, there may be palms here today, but there aren't going to be any donkeys. Uh, and at least Jesus is going to be walking on one. But today, is, or, or, or riding on one, rather. Uh, but this morning, we, we enter into Holy Week. Holy Week really is kicked off in, in history by Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem while riding on a donkey. Many shouting, Hosanna, calling out to him, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and that event kicked off Holy Week. Of course, many in the crowds, if not all of them, were seriously lacking in their understanding of what was taking place as Jesus enters into the city. Many of them not even really understanding how true what they were saying actually was. And for some, their understanding would become crystal clear by the end of the week, by the end of the Holy Week. Jesus riding in, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, that was only the beginning. Many things took place, many things that Jesus did. In fact, he was a busy guy that week. One thing that he did was he cleared the temple. He, clean, he cleansed the temple, cleared it out. Maybe you know the story of how that took place. He spent quite a bit of time that week publicly teaching. He spent quite a bit of time following up that teaching with debates of, with religious leaders. He did that quite a bit that week. He declared the greatest commandment. He predicted the destruction of the temple. He even predicted his own death and resurrection publicly. That week he ate the Passover with his disciples there in the upper room. He would teach his followers and he would pray in the garden. These are just a few of the many things that Jesus did in that week leading up to the night that he would be arrested. He would be tried before multiple rulers, all happening this same week. He would be beaten. He would be flogged. He would be mocked. He would eventually be crucified. He would be killed, and he would be buried. All happening in Holy Week. But just as he said, he would rise again that coming Sunday morning. As I told you, this was a busy week for Jesus. And, and, and throughout the church calendar, we recognize and celebrate a good bit of it. Uh, this morning, again, we, we recognize that this is Palm Sunday. This is the day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. We celebrate that. We recognize that. On Good Friday, we recognize the death of Jesus. At 6 p.m. this Friday night, we will celebrate Good Friday together. I want to invite you to be there. Would you not make it a priority for you to return that night and to, to celebrate and to remember the events that took place that first Good Friday? Together we'll remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the, cru on the cross. And then on the following Sunday... It's a day that we anticipate really as Christians all year long. And, and in a real way, we celebrate this same event every single Sunday. But we, that following Sunday, we'll celebrate Easter, the day that our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Aside from these events contained in the Passion Week, really one that stands at the top of the importance 
of these events uh, is recorded in today's passage. And so if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to skip a couple chapters from where we're at. Chronologically, we're going to jump to chapter 14. Forgive me for that, but we're going to do it anyway. Mark chapter 14, verses 20, or 12 sorry, to 25. Here in this passage, we read of Jesus eating the Passover with his disciples on that Thursday evening. You see, he would be arrested that same night. He would be killed the following day. As they shared their final meal with their master, the disciples were challenged with two topics that Jesus brings up. And so with that introduction, let's read the word of God together. Verse number 12. It'll be on the screen for you if you don't have a copy of God's word. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you to a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after the other. Is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better that he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's let's pray now. Father, there is no power in human wisdom or cunning, logic. There's no power in this pastor aside from the work that you are doing in me and in this church as we both speak and listen in accordance with your revealed word. And so we come to you now helpless, asking that you quicken us, that you renew our minds, that you sanctify us, the reading and study of your holy word. Father, it is our only hope. So we rest under it now. We pray that you would be glorified and that your church would be helped and that souls would be saved. We ask that these things be done in your name. Amen. For the sake of organization, I'm just going to give you three sections that we're going to work through that I'm going to just draw attention to as we walk through this passage. The three are this, the the old Passover, the true prophecy, 
and the new covenant. The old Passover, the true prophecy, and the new covenant. Admittedly, I I won't be highlighting much in the way of uh, application this morning. I'll go ahead and tell you that at the beginning. Uh, We'll make quite a few observations, though, as we work through these three sections. But I do want to point out for you one thing this morning that I want to call you to action in regards to. I want to call you to apply, and that is this, the main idea. Again, I hope you're going to listen to the whole thing, but if you only hear one thing, if you only write one thing down, would you write this down? The willing lamb is our worthy Lord. Worship him. Many times as we work through texts of scripture, we see that there's things that we need to put on or put off, that we need to change about ourselves. And perhaps by the Holy Spirit working in in your ears this morning, you will come to the conclusion that there's something that you need to do in connection with this sermon. But I, I know this, that if nothing else, this is what you need to do. You need to see that the willing lamb, Jesus Christ, is our worthy Lord. And that if you do nothing else, would you just worship him this morning? The willing lamb is our worthy Lord. Worship him. My prayer is that we would truly be a church that would be able to say this, that we have truly and honestly worshiped him as we've seen him in the text this morning. And so with that, let's jump into our first section. That first section is the old Passover. Look at verse number 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, well, The Passover, if you are unfamiliar, the the Passover tells the story of the Exodus. It's a celebration that the Jews would celebrate from the time that they really had been brought out of Egypt, even until now. It tells the story of when God delivered his people from the bondage of slavery there in Egypt. And during the Passover time, Jews remember how the angel of death literally passed over the houses of the Israelites during the 10th plague. He killed the firstborn of the families who did not have the blood of the paschal lamb there marked on the door. He passed over in a safe way, in a protecting way, those who had the blood. In Exodus chapter 12, God provides clear instructions for how these people, the children of Israel, were, were to remember this event in verse 6 of chapter 12 in Exodus. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. This is the 14th of Nisan, if you know the Jewish calendar. And and verse 15, seven days you shall not eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is unleavened, or what is leavened rather, from the first day unto the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And so this is the instructions that God had given the children of Israel there in the wilderness. And even until the day of Jesus, they were practicing this thing, this very celebration. And so verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb. One of the things that I love about the Bible is that we can trust it. It's so interesting here that they didn't have to give us the details of when this took place. Matter of fact, that can sometimes be a little troubling for us as we try to piece all these things together. But I love the boldness of the word of God and the, and the writers inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down these dates to tell us when they did it. We can compare that to the Old Testament and say we know exactly what they were doing and we know exactly when they were doing it. So they were to, eat, they were to not eat unleavened bread right? They were to to remove all bread that had yeast in it, essentially. Why? Because it was a reminder of the night that they left Egypt. 
but they weren't actually ready to go. They had wanted to go, but just like every night before, for the last 400 years, they'd made their bread for the next day, hoping that overnight it would rise and be ready for them to bake and and they would have what they needed for the day. And that particular night, during the Passover, when the angel of the Lord struck Egypt and broke the heart of Pharaoh, the children of Israel were released immediately. And they needed to go, and they needed to go now. And so they gathered up the bread that hadn't risen and ate it. And so this was a reminder of that. What were they to do? They were to eat bread during this period of time that hadn't been risen. And why would they sacrifice a lamb? That would hearken back to the time that they had sacrificed that lamb and rubbed its blood on the door as a covering and roasted that lamb and ate it together quickly as a family. They did that throughout following years, just as their forefathers had done that first Passover evening, placing and gathering its blood on the doorposts of their houses. And God commanded that they continually, perpetually celebrate the Passover in this way. You see, what was taking place is God had rescued them from Egypt. And he set up this celebration of the Passover. And what that celebration did was it it defined the identity of Israel. It, de- it, just, it defined the, the in and the out of Israel. The, the whole community of Israel had to celebrate it. The whole community of Israel was privileged to celebrate it. They wanted to celebrate it. It was obvious who was an Israelite. And it was obvious that they appreciated and recognized what God had done for them. And Jesus and his disciples, being good Jews, were no different So when the Passover time came, there in verse 12, his disciples say to him, Jesus, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? It's that time of year, Jesus. Uh, What would you have us to do? Where where are we going to go celebrate the Passover? Maybe they're like the kind of pushy type. Maybe they're trying to catch Jesus and like, Jesus, did you forget what day it was? You got a lot of stuff going on. I know you've, you've had a lot of exciting things taking place this week. I mean, you just went from riding on this donkey in a town, everybody thinking you're awesome, all the religious leaders attacking you, you preaching and, and debating and cleansing the temple. You're probably wore out. Did you forget? It's the Passover. When are we going to do this? Maybe they're just trying to be helpful. I don't really know. I like to use my imagination. But either way, they're probably biting their nails. Honestly, I... I at this point in time, everything should have already been secured. You, you think about the hundreds of thousands of Jews that would be celebrating the Passover, that would be descending on Jerusalem like locusts. There wouldn't be any rooms available. There wouldn't be any lambs available if you didn't have already secured this. And so all the hotel rooms, all the conferences, all the grange halls, they're all booked. What's really cool is that we see here that Jesus had made provisions that they didn't even know about it. And so he looks at them and he says, relax, boys. I took care of it. And in a way that only Jesus can do, look what he does. Verse 13, he reveals his plan. And he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. That's a little bit weird, by the way. 
from what I'm told, uh, men would not be carrying water jars, water pots at this particular time. And so while it may not stick out to us as we walk through the city of Jerusalem looking for uh, this particular, one particular guy, one of thousands and hundreds of thousands, it'd be very challenging. But to a Middle Easterner living in this day and time, apparently it wouldn't be so challenging to spot this guy. And so they're able to spot him. And, And Jesus says, when you see him, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then it says, Jesus says to them, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the disciples entered the city, the, the word of God says that they, that they found that Jesus's instructions to them were precise. They were exactly what Jesus said. And they follow this guy with a water pot to this ancient Airbnb. They go upstairs through the person's house, perhaps, or maybe on the outside. And they get up to the top and there, just as Jesus said, it's furnished with carpets and with couches for the guests to recline on there. There's a place to put the meal There, the disciples that Jesus sent begin to prepare the meal. And what would that include, preparing for the Passover? Well, it would include setting out the unleavened bread. It would include gathering the wine and making sure that it's there for for that meal that night. It would include the the preparation of the bitter herbs and the the sauce that was made up of dried fruit, spices, and wine. And and you would buy all of these, including the lamb, and they would prepare even the lamb. And and that's some of what would take place in the preparation of the Passover that Jesus had called them, these two disciples, to go and prepare in this upper room that Jesus had prepared. One of the things that you're going to see as we walk through this passage is this, this idea of preparation. And when it's used of a, 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 a personal being, not a, a room, that preparation is a willingness and a readiness. So you're going you're to see this, right? This old Passover celebration, in regard to it, the room was ready. The room was prepared. It was set. Jesus had already taken care of it, and he sends his disciples to go finish the task. So again, keep in mind, pay attention to this readiness of the room. Here during this meal that the disciples had prepared for, the Passover, Mark records Jesus as having two intense discussions. And the first one is the second section, and that's in regards to a true prophecy, a true prophecy. Look down at verse 17. It says, and when it was evening, he came with the 12. This was Thursday evening. It was the beginning of the Jewish Friday. And so as the sun sets, it's the eve of Friday, and technically it kind of is Friday. There they are. Jesus is coming with his 12. And you might say, well, how could, if there's 12, which by the way, Jesus had many disciples, but then there was the the 12. Those were a, a subset of that group, his future apostles, his disciples, the 12. It was a a concrete group. Two of them had already gone on, right? Well, there's a, you might say, well, how could that even be possible? Well, we, we don't know if those two that he had sent had returned back to the group and, and met up with Jesus, and then they'd come back to the upper room. We're not sure. Or perhaps it's just a loose reference to this group that Jesus, the 10, the balance of the 12, shows up with when they're ready. 
And the disciples are there welcoming, the other two are welcoming them. We're not exactly sure, but, but either way, evening comes and Jesus is there in the upper room with his 12 disciples. In verse 18, it says, And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a Passover Seder but you could probably imagine what it's like when families get together. There's a celebration. It's similar to maybe a Christmas dinner that you would have with maybe your family or Thanksgiving. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of noise. Families grow. That's what they do typically, right? And rooms get smaller and kids get bigger and, and noises are louder and everybody's talking. And then Jesus is leading this Passover celebration. And then all of a sudden he's like, one of you is going to betray me. Just imagine all of the air in the room sucked out of the room. You can't hear anything. Nothing's happening. If something did happen, you could hear it. If a pin dropped, I imagine people would look. Jaws on the floor. What's, what's the meaning of that statement, Jesus? People beginning to reel. Faces beginning to flush. There's only 12 of us. That's not good odds. I don't think that it's me but I don't think that it's him. I don't think that it's any of them. How could it be them? Maybe it's me. How could it be me? Lots of things happening in a split second as Jesus sucks the air out of the room. All of the festivity and the excitement, in a sense, I imagine, is shattered as Jesus with the solemn amen says, one of you, one of my intimate friends, sharing a meal with me, one of you will betray me. It says that they began to be sorrowful in verse 19. And to say to him, essentially one after the other, is it I? Is it me? Will I be the one that betrays you? Is it, is it me? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Well, that, that term, there's a lot of things that are bothersome for us in that passage. I, for, I'm sure that for any Christian here this morning, you are wrestling with this idea that the disciples were sor sorrowful, sad to hear that that was going to take place and worried that they may be the one. Maybe what's worse in this text for you is that they're dipping bread into the dish with each other. You got to believe there's double dipping happening there, right? You know, they pick up a little piece of bread, they dip it in there and they bite it. And the other guys are like, seriously, you double dip the chip. You did it again. You can't do that. You're not allowed to do that, right? That's a, that's a problem, right? Especially with our COVID-19 2021 standards, right? But the dipping uh, of, of food in bowls and of sauces and relishes, that is a very common feature of the meals of that day. And if you've ever been in a culture where that's acceptable, maybe you felt uncomfortable. People dipping hands into soup. I've been in places where it's like, hey, take some of this soup, pass the bowl over here, and I'm just supposed to lift this up after they've lifted up and their mustache has been gathering goodies in there too. Now mine is supposed to do the same. That's just weird. But not in this culture. Not in this culture. And it wasn't just one. You might say, well, who was it? Was Jesus like saying like, hey, my hand's touching Judas's hand. He's the guy. He's the guy. No, he's, what Jesus is pointing to is not Judas necessarily, but he's saying this. It's one of you probably that has brushed, you've, you've probably brushed hands as you've dipped into that sauceable. You've probably brushed hands with the person that's going to betray us. That's how close they've been. They've been so close to you. You've opened yourselves up to them. I've opened myself up to them. And they're close enough to attack. They're close enough to kill, in a sense. 
Jesus is highlighting the fact that this is going to be extremely painful. It's somebody extremely close. And they all ask, each hoping that Jesus would say, no, it's not you. Verse 21, it says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Jesus is referencing an Old Testament prophecy here, and it's found in Psalm 41. If you, uh, verse number 9 particularly, if you are taking notes, I encourage you to write that down in your margin, uh, margin, uh, margin and uh, chase that down another day. Uh, but uh, in that verse, in that passage, Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, this is what the Word of God says. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. As the disciples hear Jesus say this, they say, no, Jesus, it, it can't be one of us. It, it can't be. Is, is it me? Who, who is it? It can't be one of the 12. And Jesus says to that, no, indeed it will be. And your hand has likely brushed his as you've dipped into the sauce. Now that man, Jesus says this, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. That's how bad his punishment will be. Of course, we know something that at this point in time, at this point in this text, the disciples don't know. We know that it's Judas, and we know that his end was poor, that it had been better if he had not been born. But in fact, that man was born, and that man on his own chose to betray Jesus. And now he also was prepared to do that evil deed. Again, speaking of preparation, this disciple this traitor was prepared now to turn on his friend, to turn on his master. And so for the old Passover, the room was ready. Regarding the true prophecy, the traitor was ready as well. Pun intended, the table was set. Jesus' announcement of the traitor had likely threatened to kill the party, right? Talk about like just killing a party. Seriously? They're all worried. They're all self-absorbed and thinking, is it me? I don't know. Jesus talks about not knowing our own hearts. Is I, maybe it is me. I don't know. Nobody really feels like eating anymore. But they all continued their meal a little bit shaken, perhaps hoping that the spirit of the meal would be revived and rescued by Jesus or maybe Peter's foolishness or, 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 or Luke's or not Luke, Matthew's quick wit or something like that. They all look to Jesus as the leader and the moderator of this Passover feast, as was the custom that the leader, the, the moderator would begin to give, uh, remind the people there about the symbolism that was in the Passover meal. So looking to Jesus, maybe to talk about how the bread, the bread that they're eating that represented the bread of affliction, the fathers ate in slavery. Maybe they were looking to Jesus to talk about the bitter herbs and how that would serve to recall the bitterness of slavery. Or maybe the stewed fruit, which uh, possessed the consistency and color of mud, clay. It would remind them of making those bricks as slaves. Maybe they were hoping that Jesus would talk about the Paschal Lamb provided that would give them a reminder of God's gracious passing over of Israel on that 10th plague in Egypt. But what's interesting is that Jesus offers 
some symbolism, but it's different from what the disciples were expecting and what they were used to. It's new. And hence, we walk into our third section this morning. And in that section is the new covenant. The new covenant. Instead of explaining the symbolism in familiar ways, Jesus turned the Passover into something new. And this is why I say this is one of the most important things that occurred Holy week. Jesus takes the Passover and he turns it into something new, something different. He's not highlighting deliverance from Egypt and from making bricks and from bitter herbs. No, instead, he's highlighting deliverance from sin by what was achieved or what will be achieved by the shedding of his blood on the cross. And so here he takes the bread of that meal and he takes the wine of that meal, of that Passover celebration, and he makes them as signs of the new covenant. Look at verse 22. And as they were eating, here he he sucks the the air out of the room again as as it was starting to mount up again and people, maybe the music started playing again, I don't know. All of a sudden he says this. He took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, take This is my body. Second time, shocked. They're used to Jesus saying some some things that are wild and hard to understand from their perspective. But here Jesus is reminding them of the hints, explicit comments that he'd been making over the last couple weeks as he headed from Hermon down to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. My body's going to be broken. My blood's going to be shed, and yet I'll rise again. The bread that he passes to them, they begin to eat after he's blessed it. And he says, hey, this is is my body. And he passes the bread around to the 12. They all take it. And you need to know that Jesus, at this particular moment, he is instituting the ongoing practice of communion here. He's instituting the ongoing practice of the Lord's Supper. And he's saying to his disciples that they are to continue eating this meal. And that when they do that, they are to remember his body, which was broken for them. And he's saying, this is my body. And he's not saying, hey, this is becoming my body or that my body is with this actual bread. He's not saying either of those things. What he's saying is this, I'm passing my presence around to you. And this presence represents my exact, my being. And my being is with you. And you will be fed by my presence in your life from this point moving forward. We're going to talk about that point when that's all over. When communion goes away, so to speak. When the Lord's Supper, in a sense, is a thing of the past, or at least there's a new way to celebrate it. But he's saying, this is my body. This is my, a representation of my presence that is with you, and I'm passing it along. Each of you take some and know that I am with you. You're to continue to do that even after I am gone. It was his presence that he's pointing to in this particular moment. And so eating the bread that night, it would be like looking forward to and anticipating the resurrection of Jesus Christ and anticipating moving forward the real presence of the Lord at the celebration of communion 
over the years to come and throughout the life of the church. But look at verse 23. It says, and he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. You see, the the bread promises that Jesus will be with his followers. But here the focus is on Jesus' shed blood, and it's in the context of covenant sacrifice. It's in the context of covenant sacrifice. The, The mention of his violent death that's pictured in this red wine and the, the picture to the reference of the shedding of blood makes it pretty clear that this is a, the context is covenant sacrifice, which again may seem a little foreign for us, but not for these guys. Here they are celebrating the Passover and they know all about shed blood. They've seen it from the, from the earliest times that they can remember. They knew what the shedding blood meant. And here Jesus is saying, moving forward, This cup, when you take it, it's my blood of the covenant. Again, he's not saying this is my true blood that you should drink it. He's saying this is a representation. This is a symbol of my blood, which is what? That's poured out for many. So moving forward, the the, the cup really is a pledge that when the people of God meet for communion, their master who is heading towards his death at this particular time in the text, that he is present with them in fullness of salvation, and that is achieved by, the, by his death. And it's applied on behalf of the many. This phrase, the blood of my covenant, that's not the first time that, a, that phrase or something similar to that is used in the Bible. Again, if you're taking notes, write this down. Exodus chapter 24. You want to take a look at, at that text. There in that passage, Exodus 24, Moses is is representing the people of God as God institutes a new covenant with them. And if you remember, Exodus 20 is known for what? Some of you are working to memorize some verses in there as we speak. Hopefully not right now. But Exodus 20 is the, the Ten Commandments. This is the Decalogue. And so this is the law of God given to God's people. Moses interceding in a sense, and God is instituting this new covenant with them. And what happens there on the top of that mountain is that Moses builds an altar and he sacrifices an animal. And he takes that blood, and he throws it on the people, and he throws it on the altar. And he says this, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you. You see, the blood of the covenant means that this blood authorizes, ratifies, enacts, it seals the covenant. Jesus, using this language, he's reinterpreting the the symbolism of the Passover meal. And he's pointing to the fact that they're in a new era. They're in a new covenant and that his shed blood will be the seal of this new covenant. The old covenant, sealed by the sprinkling of the sacrificial blood of animals, it's gone away. But God's new covenant would be established by Jesus' blood. Jeremiah, he told us that this would happen. Chapter 31 of his book, Inspired by the word of God, of course. You read a, a 
part of that from chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and to bring them up out of the land of Egypt that we just talked about, by the way. Moses was working with. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother saying, know the Lord. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's exciting. Jesus is talking about the fulfillment of what Jeremiah had prophesied so long before. And you might be asking this morning, how could their sins be forgiven? How? Hebrews 9, verse 22, quoting the Old Testament, gives us a clue, and it says this. Indeed, Hebrews 9, 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no what? There is no forgiveness of sins. In order to institute and celebrate this new covenant, there would have to be a lamb. And that lamb that they had that night there in that room was willing. Jesus is willingly offering himself as that lamb, the lamb whose blood would be shed, sealing the new covenant and cleansing the people of that covenant with God himself. His blood would be shed for the remission of, of sin. Do you see that theme now? Flowing through this text. There's a ready room. There's a ready traitor. And now there's a ready lamb. And he's saying, this is my blood that will be shed for you. As the meal comes to an end, as far as it's recorded for us, Jesus says this in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here Jesus is vowing that he will abstain from wine until he comes again in the new kingdom, in the kingdom of God. What he's saying here is that there'll be no feasting for him. There'll be no wine for him. Jesus dedicates himself with a resolute will to accept not the cup of wine that would be pleasant to drink, but to accept the cup of wrath that the Father had set before him to drink. He's the willing lamb. He's ready to walk into the end of the Passion Week. This is interesting. During the Passover meal, uh, traditionally there will be four cups of wine to be drank. And each cup of wine, you might say, well, that might be a little bit of a sloppy night out of the fourth time. Well, maybe, I don't know. They're passing it around, so it goes a long way, right? But that fourth cup, it's really the cup that Jesus says he's not going to take. You see, the third cup is the cup of redemption. And that's the cup that Jesus says is the covenant, his blood of the covenant. And, And so that means that Jesus drinks that cup, the cup of redemption, of the blood of the covenant. He drinks it with his disciples, and then he abstains from the fourth. And what was the fourth? 
The fourth would, would ordinarily conclude the Passover meal and it would signify the consummation of the redemptive work of God amongst his people. And so in hope, the people of God, as they celebrated the Passover, would drink that final, of that final cup saying, let it be so. In hope, we look forward to the consummation of the work that God is doing redemptively amongst his people. But he tells his disciples, I'm gonna drink that last cup, but I'm not gonna drink it today. Not today. Today, I'm gonna drink the cup of redemption. I'm gonna drink the cup of sacrifice. I'm going to shed my blood in, a, in relation and in, in connection with that cup. But there's coming a day, he says in verse 25, where I will drink that fourth cup with you in the kingdom. And it's gonna be new wine. And I love this, the way that he says, I drink. It's in the present tense. And we don't really pick up on this, but in the original language, what he's saying is, I'm gonna drink, start drinking that cup and I'm not gonna finish drinking that cup. We're gonna continue basically for eternity in the new kingdom. We're gonna drink this new wine that like the wine at Cana is miraculous and seemingly never ending. We'll enjoy that cup as the people of God with him. And so when we take communion, even to this day, we're doing that. We're asking ourselves maybe, or you could ask yourself, this time that I take communion, this time that I approach the Lord's table, will it be the last time before we drink it with Christ in his coming kingdom? Is today the last day? I'm okay to continue going and hope I'm waiting for that fourth cup. You know those maps in the mall where you, you know, go in, whatever entrance and you see that big board and sometimes they're laid out a little better than others. Sometimes they're colorful and have little trees and bushes and things like that. And sometimes they're just square blocks and whatnot, but you can go through there and you usually can find a star and it'll say, you are here. And then you look on the code thing and you say, well, I want to go to this particular store and, and you find it on the, the code and then you find it on the map and you say, okay, this is where I'm at and this is where we're going. You know what I'm talking about? Well, let me explain something to you. And this passage the star of you are here is right there at the institution in the beginning of this new covenant being rolled out, folks being invited in. And on that night, they begin to take communion, the Lord's Supper, and they perpetually do that until even today. Those who are in the, 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 the church, those who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus, those who have received the body and the blood as payment for their own sins take part in communion and say, together, we are waiting for that final day when we'll take this with Christ when he returns. And so where are we going? We're going, we're waiting for that day. We're looking for that day. We're heading in that way. How many more times will we take the Lord's Supper together as a church? I don't know. But I know the day, in hope, I know the day is coming where we will say, not just Maranatha, but he's here and he's with us. Not just, well, even so, Lord, come quickly, but now together, church, think about that. As a church together, we'll say he is here. Just as the Passover was a memorial to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to be repeated on a regular basis, Jesus turns this last supper with his disciples into a new memorial, a, a new meal that defines the identity and, and community of those saved by Jesus' death. 1 Corinthians, uh, the, the word of God in chapter 11 uh, gives us further instructions on how we are to take it. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this in chapter 11, verse 23 and following. 
He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. And this is interesting. That's very similar to what he says. But then what Paul adds here in verse 26, it really correlates with verse 25 of chapter 14 in Mark. You follow me here? He says, Paul says in verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death for how long? Until he comes. Paul is giving further instruction for posterity to know how we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, church, you're to continue to do this just as you were taught, just as the disciples, the 12 did there in the upper room. How long are you to do it? You're to do it as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. In that doing, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until when? How long are we to do this? We're here. Where are we going? Until he comes back. Until he returns. Speaking of communion of the Lord's Supper, one pastor, theologian, he defined it in, I think, a very helpful way. And it's not concise, I'll warn you. And so I'll read it twice and I'll read it slowly. This is what he says of the Lord's Supper in, uh, in an attempt to define it. The Lord's Supper is a church's act of communion with Christ and with each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine and a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing his or her commitment to Christ and his people thereby making the church one body and marking it off from the world. I'm going to read that one more time. The Lord's Supper is a church's act of communion with Christ and each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine and a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefit and renewing his or her commitment to Christ and his people, thereby making the church one body and marking it off from the world. Again, I told you, it's not concise. But I love what it says here. If you're interested in, in getting that quote from me, I'd love to share that with you at another time. Ask me after the service. One of the things he's pointing to is this, that the church is most clearly seen in the Lord's Supper. The church is most clearly seen in communion. I to ask you this morning, where is the church? Where is the church? Well, some of you might say, well, it's the building. It's this place right here. It's these four walls. It's these chairs. The Bible says that this is not the church, but that those who have turned from their sins and placed their faith in Christ, those are the church. And so how do we know who the church is even here this morning? Well, those who have repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus will continue to obey him as he says, hey, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the church is most clearly seen in communion. And so the church taking communion is thereby fellowshipping one with another. He says as much in this quote, it's an act of communion with Christ and with each other. And so it's a fellowship. It's a meal. There's really bread and there's really wine or juice. 
It's a proclamation. You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You're claiming the benefits. You're proclaiming those benefits. And you're pointing to the fact that it's a symbol. It's a reminder. I think this would be a fitting time to share something with you that's been on my heart lately. When it comes to the ordinances, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, I have to admit to you this morning that over the last two and a half years, I have not led well. And I don't say that lightly. Be specific. For fear of baptizing unbelievers, I've been reluctant to baptize children, recognizing that Christians can be children as well. And still yet, I was afraid. If a person makes a profession of faith and desires to be baptized and, and therefore jo- and thereby join the church, I, I promise, church, from here on, I will not only get out of the way, but I will encourage and facilitate and celebrate that and continue to lead as one of the elders in that direction. Listen, church, young people and older people, if you've repented of your sins and if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you must be baptized. You must be baptized. Adult, if that's you, let's talk. Children, if that's you, you say, I've done that. I've turned from my sins. I've, I, the, by the power of the Lord working in my heart, I've confessed my sins and I've placed my faith in Jesus. I'm a Christian. Then talk to your parents and ask them, tell them why you want to be baptized if that's you here this morning. If you've placed your faith in Jesus and you've been baptized, listen, furthermore, you need to commit to the local body of saints in your area. You need to commit to the church through membership. Not all churches do formal membership. This one does. We want to know clearly who's in and who's out. We want to know who really is following the Lord. Who is committed to to the one another? Who is committed to repentance? Who Who will rebuke us? Who will exhort us? Who will correct us? Who will encourage us? Who are we accountable for? We want to know. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you've been baptized, you need to commit to the local church through membership. Begin moving that way. So I need to apologize to you and ask your forgiveness. The Lord is kind. He is forgiving. He is gentle. I pray that you would be as well. And on the other hand, we've opened the Lord's table under my leadership to those who have not been baptized, nor to those who are committed to Christ's church. We've protected the waters of baptism, but we've left unguarded the table. Again, the Lord is forgiving, the Lord is kind, and I ask that you would be as well. If you've not been baptized, if you're not committed to your local church in a tangible way, such as membership, I implore you, I beg you to move in that direction. And until you do so, hear the heart of a loving pastor, humbly abstain from the Lord's Supper, abstain from communion. And why do I say that? Why do I want to draw these hard lines? The church is like a house in a sense. And that house has one door, and that door is baptism. And those inside the house will only open the door of, baptize, uh, of baptism rather, to those who have actually turned from their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It makes sense. The door should only be open to those who have turned from their sins and placed their faith in Jesus. So those Christians inside the house will only open that door and welcome through baptism those who really are Christians, as far as we can tell. And once you're on the inside, inside of that house, imagine a table. And that table there is the Lord's Supper. 
And those in the house are able then to share that meal together. And no one should come to that table that is not welcomed in to the home through baptism and is committed to that body and entered by repentance and faith that would then manifest itself in baptism. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs of the new covenant and they're pointing to the believer's union with Christ and salvation in Christ. Baptism really is the initiating sign where we publicly commit to Christ and the church. And the church then publicly declares that you're a Christian. Baptism, in contrast to the Lord's Supper, baptism baptism is a one-time act. It doesn't need to be repeated. It shouldn't be repeated. But communion, on the other hand, is repeated. And in a sense, communion is like a renewal of your baptism commitment. In a sense, You can eat at the table within the house because you've been baptized. And every time you come to the Lord's table, remember that you have been joined with Christ. You've been united with Christ and received his salvation. So in a sense, the Lord's Supper is a renewal of our covenant. It's a remembering of our covenant. Here's the trick. You can't remember that which never happened. And so if you've not been baptized, friend, you should not come to the table. Don't hear a fencing of the table with a hard heart saying we don't want, there's an invitation to the table. There's an invitation to the waters and nothing I, I, I dare say would bring me any more joy than to see many come to faith in Christ and be baptized and stir the waters here in Hagerstown Church. And more to come to the table, but there is a process. There is a means. The means to the table is through baptism and membership. And honestly, today, I struggled. I wrestled with even sharing this information. Because many of you may feel pressured into membership. And if that's true, there's a way in which that hurts my heart. But there's another way that I I hope that you do. Because the fencing of the table, it it ends up highlighting the need for conversion. It it, it highlights the need for baptism. It highlights the, the need for committing to a local body in an effort to fulfill the one another's of Scripture. So know this, that these clarifications, these, this repentance of this pastor on behalf of the elders of Hagerstown Church are spoken in love and in intense care for the church. And even in these, if, these hard lines, remember there is an invitation. And so I pray that you would, from the oldest to the youngest, from the newest to the oldest, would you be baptized. First, repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus. Receive the grace of God. Be baptized. Identify with the people of God and commit yourself to that local church and membership and join us at the Lord's table. Hagerstown Church, we join a long line of saints who have partook in the Lord's table for two millenniums. And we'll continue to do so in hope until the day that we drink that final cup with Jesus when he returns. As we close, I want to recenter our thoughts back on this main idea. The room was ready. The traitor was ready. And praise God, the lamb was ready. You remember 
in our study of Mark's gospel, Jesus has left Mount Hermon. Think about this, fun fact. Elevation, 9,232 feet. Somewhere in that mountain range, he leaves there. And in a sense, he does not stop when he leaves Hermon until he gets to Jerusalem, until he gets to the cross. What's the elevation of Jerusalem? 2,575 feet. Now, I'm not a mathematician. I never claimed to be. That's not my strength. But I know for the most part that that's a downhill hike. And yet that downhill hike was all uphill for Jesus. Knowing what was set before him. The cup of redemption that he was called to drink. And yet our Passover lamb, he was ready. He was prepared. And he was willing. Following the main meal. The Passover, the the head of the household would typically rise from his reclining position. Listen to this. And he would challenge those who were present with this. He would say, speak praises to our God, to whom blessing or to whom belongs what we have eaten, and to which you, if you were present, would respond. Praise be to our God for the food that we have eaten. And I hope this morning that as as you consider the Lord's table, you would say this to Christian, praise be to God for the food that we have eaten. And you may ask, what would you have us to do this morning, Pastor Josh, with this passage? How should we apply this? Simply this, know this, the willing lamb is our worthy Lord. Worship him. Worship him. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate this morning that you sent Christ and that he descended those 7,000 feet of elevation all uphill working his way to the cross where his body would be broken for many and his blood would be shed for the same. We recognize that this morning. We see this theme of readiness, of preparation, of willingness. So often we overlook, we take for granted that the cross of Christ, where the blood of Christ was shed, was done by a lamb who was willing. Father, as he entered in to the city of Jerusalem, first Palm Sunday. As he went through that week, moving towards the cross, he was willing. We praise God for that. Would we not bask in that thought this morning? Would we not be encouraged by that? And would our hearts not be moved to worship? We ask that this would be done amongst your people in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.